The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Mr. Walter Deaver, who I had on before, and I always like to to listen to because he's got a hell of a lot of wisdom when it comes to investing, when it comes to life, when it comes to just ways of looking at how to generate wealth. Walter, as usual, I appreciate you spending the time here with us. For those who are not familiar with uh, your illustrious background, just talk about who you are, what you've done, how you get involved in markets, and what your sort of general way of looking at investing first off i have a question for you do you ever sleep uh few understand this <laughs> i love your responses on twitter walter deemer i started in the business in 1963 i was a research trainee at merrill lynch i went to work in their technical department in 1964 for bob farrell i went to work for jerry Sy at the manhattan fund when he started it in 1966 so i saw the go-go years from the inside I went to work for Putnam in 1970 in Boston, so I saw the Nifty 50 from the inside, and I struck out on the on my own in 1980, and I finally I worked only with institutional clients, so I'm basically looking at very long-term trends in the market. I'm sorry, guys, but just long-term. And I finally retired at the end of 2016 because 53 years had been enough of trying to figure out what the market was going to do. Also a founding member of the MTA. So you mentioned uh, Bob Farrell in the 1960s, and I think I may have mentioned this to you before, but my father worked uh, on his team in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, with Steve Chauvin, if that name sounds familiar. And and actually, I had, I had emailed Bob Farrell, I think it was like a, maybe a year or so ago, tried to get him on one of the shows that I run. I'm hoping to at some point get him on a space, but as you, it's, it's challenging to do that. But talk about your experience working with Bob Farrell. Who was Bob Farrell for those who aren't familiar with that name? And what impacted you the most in terms of working directly with him? Bob Farrell was head of the market analysis department at Merrill Lynch from the early 60s till I think 2000 and something. And he really built technical analysis into a respected a respected uh, uh, thing to, for for investors to use. He won the Institutional Investor Best Technician on the Street Award all, almost forever. And the thing that influenced me most was he was a big contrarian. So he was looking on the other side of the story. And so I kept I keep looking on the other side of the story also. If it's the old thing. If it's obvious to everybody, it's obviously wrong. Were the uh, were his famous ten rules put together at that point, or was I don't know when the ten rules sort of came into existence. 
I'm not sure, but if you look my uh, my book, it's, uh, I wrote a book in 2011 called Demon Tech on Technical Analysis, which is a horrendous title, but McGraw-Hill foisted on me. And I wrote Bob an email. I said, Bob, an email. I said, Bob, there are all sorts of different versions of 10 rules floating around. Could you send me the official version? And by the way, do you have any more rules you'd like to add? And Bob sent me the the official version. And he added a, a 11th rule, which I'm trying to find in, in, in the book. But it, it's all over the internet, Bob Farrell's rules of, of investing. And it's basically common sense. Bull markets are more fun than bear markets. Uh, a market with broad leadership is a lot better than a, an advance with broad leadership is a lot better than an advance with narrow leadership and so on. Yeah. And what's amazing to me about the rules, and what we'll maybe go through a couple of them, is that even though they're decades old, the stuff is still very appropriate and maybe even more so today because of the advent of social media and the way that things get so amplified in emotions and as such uh, money movements, which we'll talk about. Now, you had uh, you, you, you under your breath apologized when you said you're uh, you try to think long term. And I was chuckling to myself while I'm mute because it's funny that we're in a world where you have to apologize for thinking long term when everyone is supposed to be a, a long-term investor. I want you to talk about from your experience, why is it that we're at a point now in time where the long-term seems to be just a couple of weeks or, or even a day? Because it wasn't always like that when it came to this business of investing. You know, back in my youth, you know, a, a stock would come out with bad news and it was grind its way down for weeks and now go down a little bit every day. And now it goes down in a matter of minutes. It just adjusts everything. Intermediate term moves take minutes. Almost. I just found Bob's 11th rule, which I think is good. Though business conditions may change, corporations and securities may change, and financial institutions and regulations may change, human nature remains essentially the same. I would say that is a key thing. It's, 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 it's the same. Human beings are doing it. They do it a lot faster than they used to, but, but they used to. But, but they, they're still humans ultimately controlling things. And we all have emotions. But I think also it's that, and I've seen some studies on this, that attention spans have gotten shorter in time. So I always reference there was this, I think it was Microsoft that did this study in 1998, 1999 to some people in Canada. And however they conducted the study, they found out back in like 1999 or whatever it was that the average attention span was maybe like 12 seconds. And then they reran the exact same study years later and they found that it shrank to eight seconds. And then you start looking at the internet and you focus on, uh, these very short form videos that might be six seconds. And so so I, I am curious, Walter, if if this kind of shortening of attention spans because of distractions, if you think that make identifying opportunities easier or harder, because you can make an argument that it, it's easier in the sense that you can see when everybody's distracted, but that also creates a lot of noise around price movement. Yeah, but I think the thing, the trick is, it makes it easier if you step back away from the noise and just look at the at the information. You know, there's a lot of short-term noise going around, and if you step back a couple steps and look at the longer-term trend, it gets more. For example, take the market we're in now. Everybody knew when the market went down that it had gone down a lot. Everything was oversold. Everybody in the world was looking for a tradable bottom. Everybody. I mean, we all knew, and all sorts of signals flashed. And so the market ignored the signals for a while and ignored the signals for a while. And then all of a sudden caught fire, and we had three gigantic updates. And everybody says, now all of a sudden everybody says, aha, new bull market. Uh, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. It's funny you say, because I keep on putting out those sarcastic tweets whenever it's a big update following a series of down days. I say, well, I guess the bear market's over. 
And then, and then when the market starts then going down, I say, I guess the bull market is open. over. And I, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but to your point, the, the speed with which people's viewpoints on the future change is remarkable now. One thing is a, it's a study recency bias from a behavioral finance perspective. Another thing is to see it's beyond recency bias. It's literally randomness bias. Yeah. And, but I think I think you have to keep the pig picture in mind. For for example, Marty Zweigu may have been the greatest uh, market analyst who ever lived. Had an old rule: don't fight the Fed. And th- this is paid to be informed. Everybody in the world knows what the Fed's doing, and everybody is looking around corners to see what the Fed's going. To. Not only do we now know when the Fed is going to increase, but we now know when the Fed is allegedly supposed to decrease, and we've taken that into account. And I put out a a quote. Back in the days of the Manhattan Fund, in, in the go-go years, we were standing around the broad tape, the Dow Jones news ticker, and a statement came over in June, in, in June of 1969, which was just about the peak of the speculative binge that was going on back there. I mean, it was, it was so speculative that they had, there was, they had to close the exchange one day a week because they were swamped in paperwork. And the chairman of the Federal Reserve, William McChesney Martin, said, and I quote, we're going to have a good deal of pain and suffering before we can solve these things, unquote. And I remember one of the young guys standing around and snickering about pain and suffering. But if you look at the charts of what the market did from June of uh, 1969 until June of 1970, there was a lot of pain and suffering. And, you know, the Fed was telling you that. And so I sent that out. And a little while later, on May 12th, Jay Powell comes out. Who, For those of you who don't know, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. So know, I'm, glad, I'm glad you say it because I know uh, I'm laughing when you say it, but I've seen these polls that I think the Wall Street Journal has done in the past where they ask people who's the Fed chair. And like maybe two, three years ago, people would still say Greenspan. You put you you've done it, Michael. You you put things out on Twitter and say something obvious, and somebody comes back and asks you. You mentioned the chairman of the Fed. What's the Federal Reserve Board or something really obvious or anything? Anyway, Jay Powell says on on May twelfth, the process of getting inflation down to two percent will also include some pain. Okay, so we have been warned. Now that doesn't mean the market can't go up, but it's going up against a hostile Fed. And the last couple of bottoms we have seen have occurred with the Fed not turning, not hostile. And so it's a different environment, which is why I wonder to myself whether we're going to go through a base building process at some point. The market will go down to wherever it's going to go. And then instead of going up, it'll just as long as the Fed is hostile and the background is hostile. And it takes a while to watch all the speculation out and everything. Uh, maybe it'll build a base. You look at the Kathy Woods arc, it started down in February of a year ago, and it's been going down. I think probably it's going to have to, at some point, build a base before it goes back up. I'm not sure. Maybe we're going to go back to the good old days when we built bases rather than maybe bottoms. So I think that's interesting because I, I think you're spot on. That's the only way you can break the uneducated speculation that I've been ranting on for the last year plus, because you need time for people to be frustrated to give up their mistaken ways of thinking about markets, which means you have to have those bases. You can't just have V-like formation, more of a you know prolonged U, let's call it, and that would maybe be the seeds of a of a broader bull market. Now, you mentioned the Marty's Zweig, and so I, I often put out this video of my father uh, teaching a bunch of Merrill Lynch brokers uh, an introdu- introduction to technical analysis, and he mentioned that Zweig often is known for fundamentals, or at least back then in the late 80s, but talks technicals. So to your point about 
the technical side at the end of the day, that's often where a lot of these sort of legendary analysts put most of their communication and focus on. But on the don't fight the Fed point, I want, I want to hit on that a little bit because I, I have to tell you, I've always found that to me a, to be a problematic term because I don't know what that means. And what I mean by that is the Fed lowered rates uh, all throughout 2000, 2002 into three. Right? The Fed lowered rates in the midst of, of the COVID crash. And you hear people often say, don't fight the Fed. But the reality is the market's going to do what it's going to do until it finally finds its inflection point. How do you think about that term, don't fight the Fed, in terms of that sequence of returns? And also, maybe in terms of the bond market, because I would argue that the bond market is clearly fighting the Fed, given the speed of the yield yeah. spike. Well, let's let's add a corollary. Don't fight the Fed. But when you don't have to fight the Fed anymore, don't go out and buy. Just start looking for for a reversal. In other words, you've gotten the roadblock out of the way, that, but that doesn't mean the road's clear ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Okay, so basing a uh, different kind of environment. And you mentioned that you've got to block out the noise. I don't think there, I think the one thing we can all agree on that's in a almost permanent secular bull market is the amount of noise there is from social media, from traditional media when it comes to investing and trading. How do you block out the noise? Because uh, it's everywhere. I don't see how people are able to focus on anything, which kind of goes back to the attention span point, when there's so many different signals, indicators, approaches, and one day this is what everyone should focus on, but the next day this is something else that people should focus on. Talk about that dynamic, because again, I have to assume, uh, Walter, that that wasn't the case decades ago. Well, I I think, Michael, it helps, at least from my standpoint, to focus on the underlying trend. You get all these short-term things. Is it taking place against an underlying trend that is power that is up, or is it taking place against an underlying trend that's down? And I think if you step back and and, and look at it that way, you can you can take the shorter-term moves in context. And I think one of the one of the things that I learned very quickly from a cycles guy named Frank Peluso is when something doesn't do what it's supposed to do, let us say this, the market goes down and it's supposed to rally, your work says it's supposed to rally and everything, and it stages this rally, but it's a very weak, pathetic rally. That's not telling you that your work is wrong. It's telling you the underlying trend is unusually weak. So look at the underlying trend. So look at, again, I don't want to pick on Kathy, but look at ARC. It's been going down for over a year, and it's had some pretty good rallies along there. But the general trend is down. You know, if you bought the if you traded the rally, you have to be sure to get out before it starts going down again. And I've seen this movie a lot of times. The the, the crap goes down first, and then the, the good stuff goes down. So it is not hardly surprising to see the fangs going down following the the really aggressive, you know secondary, tertiary, wild growth stocks that Kathy owns. And, you know, I have seen every time a group gets exploited like that, it ends up the same way. So the speculative stocks in 1958-61, vending, bowling, electronics and everything, they went up. I put it, somebody sent out a chart of universal match the other other day, which was one of the vending stocks you know, in, the, in the late 50s, early 60s. It went round numbers 10 to 60 to 10. No, I haven't. In 1968, we had the go-go years. The, the, I can't even tell you the stocks because they don't even exist anymore. They went up, Four Seasons Nursing, National Student Marketing, stuff like that, King Resources. And then they went back down again. Then the Nifty 50 in the, in the early 70s. They went up and they didn't go down that much, that, that badly, but they, they still got cut in half, which is a pretty big drawdown for an institutional investor, the, the dot-com stocks in, in, in 2000. You knew it was excessive and it took a while. 
you're right, Michael. It takes a while to wash it out. The time factor is as important as the price factor. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So I think this is interesting because I haven't really talked about this in prior spaces, but you, know, you talk about these companies you can't even uh, talk about anymore because they're no longer around, I think is worth emphasizing because I do believe that people massively underestimate survivorship bias when it comes to investing because you look at all these longer-term charts and you say stocks with the long run, but the reality is the constituents of that index change, and they change because of mergers, buyouts, and bankruptcies. Talk about the current environment in terms of if you think people may or may not be underestimating the potential for companies today to simply not be around in the next several years, because we've often heard that term zombie companies. We've often heard that a lot of companies should no longer be around, but they're sticking around because rates had been so low under zero interest rate policy and all this intervention by policymakers. Well, if, if a lot of that's going away, it seems like a lot of companies could could soon go away. But, but riff on that for a little bit. I don't have to reflect on it. Just go back and look at the leadership from uh, the past, the dot-com era. You you can't find charts of of them now because they don't exist. Some of them still do, like Cisco, but a lot of them, so you're right, a lot of them won't go. The fangs will last because if you looked at the Nifty 50 growth stocks, they were strong companies. So most of them last, not necessarily in the same format, but most of them last. They ended up not necessarily being uh, wunderkinder anymore. If, if, If you look at the, the, the fang stocks, if, I'm not going to live long enough to see what they look like 40 years from now, but I doubt that they're all going to be market leaders in their fundam- in a fundamental sense of the way they are now. Uh, so I love that because that's, I think, what plagues most of the uneducated speculation around these mega cap uh, tech names in particular, because history has shown time and time again, there's no such thing as a permanent leader. And yet people seem to be under the impression that that's going to be the case because of market cap waiting and the prolonged momentum that's existed in a lot of these fangs really since QE3. I, I, I think it's a wildly important point to emphasize. There ain't no such thing as permanent leadership. Nothing is forever. There are no one decision stocks in the stock market ever. Never have been, never will be. Yeah, 100%. In my, in my opinion. Yeah, right. Let me, let, always always up in, a, in my opinion caveat. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I should be, I should be answering. Let, let me say that uh, for those who don't know, the Nifty 50 growth stocks were really exploited in the early 1970s. And Putnam was in the thick of things and money was coming into our advisory accounts that, that managed pension funds. Every day, we were buying McDonald's at 75 times earnings and in 1973. And McDonald's, over the next eight years, their earnings went up. 25% per year compounded for the eight years, never missed a quarter. And the stock went from 75 times earnings to eight times earnings. So what did Putnam do, which was buying McDonald's at 75 times earnings? I happened to be on Wall Street Week on February 29th of 1980. It happens to be the only February 29th broadcast Wall Street Week ever had. And I sent a memo. I, I, I asked, I would like to mention some of the big growth stocks because I thought they were finally getting washed out. 
And I said, and I asked whether I had permission, clearance to, to mention them. And I said, I, 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 and I said, upon checking, this is a memo that's in my book. Upon checking with the advisory company, I was told I couldn't mention McDonald's or Bill Myers. They have cell programs underway pre- presently in both stocks. So they bought McDonald's at 75 times earnings, and they turned around and sold it at eight times earnings. That's the psychology of a bottom. Because it's so easy to extra, extra, extrapolate past performance in the future into the future. It's very easy to just extrapolate it in the future. What it's done in the last three years, it's going to do forever, which, as you know, doesn't always happen. As a matter of fact, very often it doesn't. Well, and, and it's also, it's, I think even a step further, it's, it's very easy to draw lines, right? Like, and, and I say, I'm not, I'm not, it's not me picking on, on, on people that are showing all these support resistance channel lines. Like, uh, whether that works or not, I'm not to say because you have to back this, that stuff. But, uh, you know, I think that unfortunately, most people's uh, view of analysis of the future is to not only look at the most recent past, but then literally draw it out, which makes them convinced even further that's what's going to happen several months from now. And it's just not, it's just fantasy. History history tells you it's not it's not going to happen. It can happen for a while, but it's not going to last. It's not going to last forever. History history doesn't even rhyme on that point. Nothing lasts forever. Even Exxon, one of the greatest companies of all time, got kicked out of the Dow because it was such a lousy company. Of course, the stock doubled right after that, and that's another story. But just happens. General Electric. They don't last. Go back and look at the biggest stocks that were of fifty years ago and see how many of them are around now. I would if, if I were twenty eight years old, which I'm not. I would make a bet with somebody that I, I would list the FANG stocks, and I will say 40 years from now, half of them won't be around. Make a bet with somebody. I won't be, I can't do it because I won't be around to collect. I don't know where my forwarding address is. Well, hopefully it's up, not down. <laughs> so that's that's one way to, to think about that. So one of the things, Walter, I, I often say was, and that's where I was the direction I was trying to go with, is that this is a very humbling business, uh, this, this business of investing in the sense that. There's survivorship bias, and this is perhaps the only domain in life where you can be right and lose money and wrong and make money. I want you to talk about the role of humility when it comes to longer-term investing. Because one thing which is remarkable to me is that everyone's often talking about their winners, and very few talk about their losers. How important is humility to to longer-term wealth generation? I will give you two quotes. One is from Alan Shaw, who was one of the founding members of the MTA. He was with Smith Barney. The stock market is the creation of man that has most humbled him. And the other is a quote from from Stan Burge, who was at Tucker Anthony. He was an institutional technician and was never got any press or anything, but he was really smart. And he said he kept reminding people. Always remember that we are dealing with probabilities and not certainties. So your model you know, works, say, 95, 98% of the time, not 100%. This is one of the times it doesn't work. It just happens. It doesn't mean the model's wrong. It just means it's not going to be perfect. Yeah, and it's hard for people to understand that the best time, the best way to avoid a, a drawdown is after one's already taken place, which is really just another way of saying buy low, sell high. But Everybody always wants to buy high, sell higher because it goes back to that recency bias. They see the pass and they simply extrapolate just like they see the pass of a drawdown and assume it's going to continue. Yeah, as somebody once observed, what has a stock that has gone down 90% done? The stock has gone down 80% and then been cut in half. <laughs> that's exactly right. No, that's, 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 and, and, and it's also, by the way, interesting to me that, and I'm sure you've seen all this too, Walter, but I want to hear your thoughts on this. 
it, it is mind-numbing to me how people will refer to the performance of a strategy or an individual stock and use that as a way of justifying why they are not buying or selling, but they're not talking about the performance of when they themselves bought in. And I see that a lot with the Bitcoin community, right? You talk about the way performance has been the last year and a half, two years, and the response is always, well, zoom out. And my counter response is, when did you buy? It's like people seem to justify their belief in an investment based on somewhere that they didn't themselves execute a trade on. How do you think that mentality may have impacted market dynamics? Because I think one thing that's frustrating here is that oftentimes people are saying things and they're doing it as a way to take a jab at somebody else versus actually trying to engage in thoughtful investment conversation. Well, and part of that is is my old saying about when the time comes to buy, you won't want to, which means that your work says to buy, and then emotionally, it's very difficult to pull the trigger. Two guys, they had a technically oriented mutual fund up at Wellington back in the uh, 70s, and the performance was, was not good. And you know, we asked the two managers why their performance wasn't that good, and the answer was, we didn't follow our signals which means they got their signals, but they didn't believe them. So getting a signal is just half the battle, having them pulling the trigger. For some people, it's emotionally extremely difficult to pull the trigger. And one of my theses is the more difficult it is for you to pull the trigger, the more likely you are to be right. If you are putting, if you are putting in a buy order and you are literally throwing up on your keyboard as you press the enter key, you're probably going to be right. If you're putting in a buy order and then you just pat yourself on the back and start figuring out what you're going to do with all the money you're going to make, you may have a problem. Psychology hasn't changed. It ain't going to, it never has and it never will, I don't think. And that goes back to the humility point because as I keep going back to this line, no amount of intelligence increases the clarity of one's crystal ball. So if you have such conviction when you're pressing that buy button that you know what tomorrow brings, well, life is humbling. Markets are humbling. Right. And, and humility is, is recognizing that you don't know what tomorrow brings, but you still have to take an action today. Yeah. You think you know what tomorrow is going to bring, but you don't. That's, a, again, Sam Burgess thing, probabilities and not certainties. You have a, you, you have a pretty good idea that the market's going to open, the New York Stock Exchange is going to open at 9.30 tomorrow, tomorrow morning. But it's not a certainty. Maybe the power goes out in New York tomorrow morning. You know, it's a certainty. It, it very likely is going to open, but it's not definite. Nothing is definite, especially in the financial markets. So it's funny you say this, because I often rant about that point that nobody can predict the future. And you know, I, I have been around the country doing CFA chapter presentations. And I say, listen, as much as I don't believe that anybody can predict the future, we still have to all make a prediction. And everybody makes predictions whether they realize it or not. So another analogy to that would be you set your alarm clock at night. Well, every time you set your alarm clock at night, you're making two predictions. One you're going to have a job because otherwise, why would you set your alarm clock? Two, you're going to be alive. Otherwise, why would you set your alarm clock? And so, so we all have to make predictions on the unknowable future, but it's about, to your point, probabilities. And the challenging thing, which I think most people have a hard time intellectualizing, and then I'll go to the audience, is that probabilities change second by second when it comes to investing. It's never a static probability. That's correct. And also, if it happens that for example, take the uh, market now. It, a lot of people, and I don't like to do forecasts or opinions, but I happen to believe it's a bear market rally. You know, it's a rally within a longer-term downtrend. Okay, So a lot of people beforehand say, this is a longer-term downtrend. Sure, it's going to rally, but I'm going to ride it out. 
And so they decide to ride it out. Then the market goes straight up for three days and they say, holy shit, this looks a lot different than I thought it was going to be. No, it didn't. It's a a rally within a longer term downtrend. It hasn't broken any downtrend lines. It hasn't broken any really anything on the upside. But they look a lot different when they're underway than before the before they started. And you expected one to happen. It's just and again, it's psychology. Things look a lot different when they're underway than they did beforehand. Michael, I don't know. I'm going to pass the ball to you, my friend. Yeah, no, it, it, well, I'm, so I'm glad you say I don't know because I don't know either. <laughs> okay, and, uh, and I think that's a – so this is an important thing about uncharted territory. It's uncharted, right, in the sense that we don't really know. And yes, you can argue that – and Walter, maybe that's a good direction to go. You can argue that history rhymes. It's a cliche term. John Rush mentioned that earlier. But we really have no idea where we're headed here. Yes, you can argue that, to your point, behavior is behavior. It doesn't change. But it seems like now – you also have the behavior of the Fed, which I think is also maybe in a weird position from the standpoint that they're suffering probably some from emotional biases more than anybody else as far as what to do when you're entering a recession, because their emotional bias would probably be lower rates. Don't do QT. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, but the problem the problem the Fed has is that they can't print oil and they can't print grain uh, food. Right, and that's that is what makes. Although I'll tell you something, maybe that's an interesting question too. So Walter, more of a thought experiment because again, you've seen a lot of cycles here. I have this very non traditional belief that you can make an argument the best thing the Fed can do is actually lower rates to solve the supply chain crisis in the sense that in order for there to be competition in order for there to be more variability and diversification of where the supply chains are located, you probably need to have another debt binge to build out the infrastructure locally. And I know that sounds very strange, and obviously that's a longer term argument, but on that point about printing oil and printing grains, is there anything that the Fed can do to maybe help bring out some more supply because they have owned the supply of money? Uh, somehow I don't see Jay Powell going out and uh, becoming a wildcatter. I think that I think that's absolutely fair. I would guess the answer is yes, Michael. You might be different, but I will say one thing about leadership, and that is traditionally leadership changes during the late stages of a bear market where the new t- leadership telegraphs its intention by gel- generating relatives. For instance, in 1973-74, we had a bear market. We had a major low in December of 73, and then we had a much lower low in 1974. But and the Nifty 50 all made lower lows. But this little thing called U.S. Steel made a low in December. And in 1974, with the market caving in, U.S. Steel did not break its 1973 low. And it turned out the cyclicals assumed leadership during the next bull market. The Nifty 50 had a rebound and then they it. The cyclicals went up and it was very difficult to get Putnam, who was very much interested in quality growth stocks. To think of cyclicals, we finally we came up with a index. We did a lot of sector work back then, which was not easy back in the day before real computers and stuff. 
and we had a basic industrial average, and we couldn't sell the fund managers on it, so we called it the capacity short average. The, 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 the kicker was that there weren't enough plants around to make enough steel, and that was that was the play. But I, I tend to agree with you that from all the work I have seen from the people that, that I respect, commodities have, are, are, start, are in the early stage of a secular bull market. It doesn't mean they're not going to have corrections along the way, but commodities look like they're in the secular bull market. And so one can look back at the big picture and say, maybe over the next five, six years, commodities are going to do better than equities. Okay, now there's something interesting about that which has been bothering me, which is, and again, I I recognize it's never perfect, but historically when you have commodities do well, you have, from a relative strength perspective, emerging markets outperforming like the U.S., right, developed markets. And you haven't seen any of that, right? Emerging markets continue to just be horrible from a momentum perspective, and instead you have just nothing but unrelenting relative performance in commodities, and by the way, relative performance in defensive sectors, which is a little strange too. You can argue there's a there's a divergence, which is pretty unparalleled there. Walter, I'm curious, do you, do you pay attention to secondary or tertiary type of relative momentum moves when, it, when a new cycle is emerging? Because again, if commodities are running, it would seem to me that the commodity resource countries should really start to run relative to equities. You saw some of that with Brazil, obviously. But maybe there's something different this time because of the financial situation and debt levels of emerging economies. How do you think about that side of the equation? I think emerging markets in general are one thing. But if you look down at specific emerging markets, you have the Australia has been doing very well relatively. So maybe one of the other things we have to decide over the next couple of years is maybe at least some overseas markets are going to outperform the U.S. market. I'd, so love, maybe- to see, I'd love to see that, by the way, because it's, it, it's, it's and this is something I think is has been frustrating from an active management perspective. It's very hard to beat the S&P when the S&P is the only game in town, which means that when you're in an environment where small caps are weak, very hard, right? When you're in an environment where international and particular emerging markets are weak, pretty much impossible. So it'd be great to see that. I'd love to see momentum outside of mega caps running. It's just you could have argued, argued that also any time in the last several years, right? And it just hasn't happened, at least not yet. No, but in hindsight, at the beginning of the year, you should have bought Brazil and Australia and shorted the S&P. So there were places to hide. Now, Australia and Brazil are in bull market. Right. Finally, moment. some diversification matters there, right? Yeah, I guess the point being is the Standard Poor 500 is not the only game in town. Everybody in the world thinks the whole world revolves around the S&P 500. It doesn't. And besides, it's a crappy index. Take a look sometime how many changes there are in the S&P 500. You'll, you'll be amazed how much turnover there is in it. Yeah, turnover and passive, which is funny to, to think about. If you're a trader, you look at anything that's going to go up. Doesn't doesn't matter what it is as, as long as it's it, it, as long as the U.S. citizen can buy it. You know, it's fine. So some of these emerging markets, commodities, commodity ETFs, you look everywhere, and the name of the game is survival. Here's a thought. Here's a thought I'll throw out that worth thinking about because I think about it a lot. Somebody pointed out to me that in a real bear market, a real, and I'm not sure that. The, the suspicion is that this is a real bar market and not a bull market correction. In a real bear market, eventually all the S&P sectors are in downtrends. Right now, one of them isn't. And it's going to take a lot to make energy go into a downtrend. question is, before this is all over, is energy going to crack along with everything else? Or is it going to survive? It's an intriguing thought because it takes so much at this point. To make energy break down. That, by the way, that kind of relates to a question I wanted to ask you about before going back to the audience um, around defining contrarianism. Because I feel like a lot of people think that contrarianism is just 
the market's up big, it means the market's going to go down big. So you might as well be allowed and argue that. And I always go back to contrarianism isn't about identifying an extreme necessarily. It's about identifying where the expected value and payout is highest. So if everyone is betting on the same pot, you're better off in looking at where fewer people are betting because the number of people that you split that pot against is less. How do you think about <laughs> talk about contrarianism for a bit in terms of how do you think about defining it and what makes for a good contrarian? A good contrarian is one. The thing is, the prevailing wisdom can be right for a while. It's been a lot of people have been bullish on energy for a long time, and it's worked out. Yeah, it's in a its own private bull market. You know, if the S and P five hundred had nothing but energy stocks, we would all be rejoicing about how much money we were making. A whole bunch of other sectors in there, and the question is whether energy is ultimately going to uh, succumb to the general down uh, down pressure or not. It's a very intriguing thought because it, it boggles the mind to think what it would take to put energy stocks into a bear market, and the the answer at this point is a hell of a lot. It would be, be a crash, right? You'd have to have like a legitimate 20%, 30%. Because that's the only thing, thing, thing that could really break it down on, on, a, on an absolute basis is just something that everything correlates in the same way. Yeah, and one of the things is the market goes down enough that everything else is going down and finally people say, the hell with it, I'm not going to sell something that's already down 50%. I'll sell something that's, that hasn't gone down 50% yet. So, you know, psychology can rotate into the winners. Whether it does or not, I don't know. I mean, the price of oil is a very interesting thing to keep an eye on. Right now, the price of oil seems to be breaking out to the upside. So it looks like energy stocks aren't going down yet. Well, I, I think you're, you're correct. Personally, I think you're correct in going back and looking at those things. Because, you know, if you look, we just looked at the energy sector as being in a bull market. Now, let's take ARC and that type of stock. That's been in a major bear market for well over a year. And the unwinding there, the ringing out has been phenomenal. And it doesn't look like it's over yet. It looks like people are still buying her fund on, on weaknesses. As I'm finding saying that the buy signal on ARC is when a mob with torches and pitchforks storms her office. If you see that on CNBC, you can go buy ARC as soon as they storm her office with torches and pitchforks. But it hasn't happened yet. As Michael alluded to, the time factor takes a while. It's, it's not just that it's gone down, but it stayed down, that it stays down. That's what kills people. So you know, the unwinding of the dot-coms, it took a long while for them to unwind, and then they just stayed down. In, in 73, 74, your speculative stocks peaked in 68, 69. They basically had a first leg down in 1970, had a 50% retracement in 71, 72, and then had all second leg in 73, 74. The average stock on the Amex, the indicator digest, the indicator digest New York average, which is unweighted, was down 75%, 68 to 74. The average stock on the Amex was down 88%. So it's a time factor. The longer it goes down, the more it hurts people. I think looking at these past things are are quite appropriate. And if that's true, you're going to get a change in leadership. And that that brings with a kind of an interesting uh, other question, which is when you see these changes in leadership, is the... Is the return in is the biggest return in where the leadership emerges from, or is it from the beneficiaries of the leaders? So what I mean by that is, let's say energy does continue to run. Okay, at some point, maybe the real way to play an oil run might actually be in alternatives to oil, maybe nuclear, maybe uh, whatever, any other num- number of alternatives. So I'm curious, Walter, as an offshoot of that, has there been any kind of examples in history where it seems obvious that there's a leadership change coming, but 
it's actually a non-obvious secondary type of industry or sector that is where to actually invest money in. That, that's why we watch charts. If it, if it rotates into a different area, you'll see it. As soon as you see it, you jump in. You'll see leadership. That's why that, uh, all the charts I look at have a relative strength line on them. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. I'm going to be a smart ass and say the market is going to respond to something things you don't know about rather than things you do know about. It's going to re- respond to the headlines three months from now, not the catalysts that you think are going to be in the paper tomorrow or next week. And when it goes up, it will be obvious in hindsight, but not at the time, in my opinion. And I'll add to that because there's there is there are studies on that, and I've referenced this in a space before, and I know I've seen the research paper. I just can't recall than the exact name of it, but someone back in the late 80s looked at the 10 or 20 biggest up and down days historically in the Dow going back to 1896, right, when the Dow Industrials was created, and looked at the Wall Street Journal to see if there were any headlines on the day that could explain why the market was up so much or down so much. And something like half of the big up or down days had nothing to do with any kind of observable headline or catalyst in that sense. So- while, I, yes, the human mind always wants to find a reason for why something is happening, Walter, to your point, oftentimes these changes really don't need a catalyst. The market's just seeing something or subconsciously there's something that's happening that, that causes that secular shift. And you only know or realize it and the story is constructed after the fact. I don't think you need a catalyst more than prices going down. If prices go down, people will say something's wrong and they better you know, follow it. If prices just want to go down, they'll go down. You'll, you'll find out why afterwards. One of, my, one of my favorite quips is if you want to watch CNBC like the pros do, turn the sound off. They'll always tell you why something's happening, but who cares? It probably doesn't mean anything. I mean, I always said that the most the easiest thing to do is write the, the, the headline for the uh, what the market did today on on uh, on Monday. The market went went down today because uh, of fears of greater Fed tightening, or the market went up today despite fears of greater Fed tightening. That's easy. Just saying because to despite, and you got it made. Yeah, that's yep. I, and, and by the way, I, I, that's not a, necessarily even I, I would argue a critique on on financial media, although you can argue that's the case. The reality is they're giving the people what they want. People want an explanation. Yeah. It's just it's the unfortunate reality. Who do you blame for being overweight? The, the person serving the food or the person ordering it? It's, yeah, exactly. it's, it's, it, to me, it's always the same point. So listen, we're coming up at the top of the area. We'll do one let more. Me, question. Let me just let, uh, let me just ours is not to reason why ours is just to sell and buy. And I'll, I'll give you another one-liner. I don't choose the cards I'm dealt. I just choose to play the game. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you also on that. Let's go to for the final question. Yeah, it's hard to, on the latter point, it's hard to, uh, you mentioned CRISP. I use I use CRISP uh, data in the different research studies that I'm known for around the risk on, risk offside. But yeah, keep in mind also, whenever you look at any kind of historical data beyond price movement, even price movement, I would argue, has some complications. You don't really know how the standards were uh, 40, 50 years ago to have, I think, any degree of confidence. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's more of a side note. But Walter, maybe on that, let's finalize on that point about the Exxon drawdown and 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 price controls, because there's a concern that the next thing that's coming is some degree of price control, either with yield curve control or somehow with commodity prices. And you can do price controls without necessarily actually controlling price. You can do it by incentivizing oil companies to drop their margins by saying, the bigger your margin, the more we're going to tax you with windfall tax. Talk about how that might be a complicating factor maybe to the stock story of the commodity run. I think it would screw the market so bad that it was, it's almost unthinkable. You can't control the price of oil. 
as I said, and this is not being a wise ass, that they can't print oil. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So is everybody that's... Uh, if, you, that's if, you see, if, you, if you see Jay Powell out in West Texas drill, drill, you know, looking for oil, I'll change my mind. I would, if, that, if I ever did see that, I would have CNBC not on mute, just so I could watch and listen to the commentary around that. So again, everybody that's that's been here, I appreciate those that joined. Please make sure you follow Walter Diemer and check his books as well. I always like listening to those who are seasoned, have seen many cycles, and cut through the bullshit that I think, unfortunately, most people do fall for, especially in the FinTwit space. Walter, thank you for spending this hour. Any sort of parting thoughts or, or suggestions for people in terms of how they think they should think about the kind of the name of the space, buying stocks when you don't want to? How do you try to get somebody to, to counter that natural feeling? No, I think I will. Richard Russell, the Dow Theory Letters, and one of the one of the greatest technicians ever, who passed away a number of years ago, spoke at the first MTA seminar, and he ended his presentation by quoting Dostoevsky: "Be simple and rediscover the world." Great way to uh, to end the space. Thank everybody for joining. Thank you, Walter. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.